Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you chapter 38 of the book of Eov. There is no other place in Tanakh where God speaks to the, exp- to the extent that he does here. True, all of the speeches from the words of the prophets of Nevi'im are the words of God, but as God himself said in the book of Numbers, Sefer Bimidbar, excluding Moses, all prophets get God's messages through visions and dreams or through some other subconscious transcendental event. As he says there in Bimidbar, I will make myself known to him through a vision, and dreams I will speak to them. It is then essentially up to the prophet to convey the message that he received by, uh, uh, from God, generally speaking, using their own powers of poetry and persuasion. However, here in chapters 38 through 41, we have two major speeches, 80 plus verses in the first speech and 50 plus verses in the second of uninterrupted word of God. And the text is, in most cases, actually easier to read and comprehend than many other parts of this great book. So what we expect to find as religious readers is that all of the issues of theodicy should be resolved one by one. If we could only listen to God's speech in the right way and understand its true meaning, then all the answers in the universe would be resolved. But it's a bit like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, who, which proposes that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is the number 42. The only problem is that we don't know what the question really is, so we can't understand the answer. So I'd like to limit everyone's expectations. I do not know how to extract the meaning of life from these chapters. Um, I think, I'm afraid if I say that, then you'll all turn off your MP3 devices as a, a total waste of, do- uh, of time. However, in my defense, I'd like to say that Eov himself is not satisfied after the first speech. We'll see that he agrees to hold his tongue, but he does not agree to agree with God. So while I'm afraid I, have, I will uncover no secrets here, I will try to highlight the major points that the author uh, that God or the author through God's speech is making. And if we could get a few glimpses of the little pictures of what the author of Eov is trying to explain to us, maybe we can be blessed indeed to get some very small glimpse of the big picture as well. In the first verse, there is we are presented essentially with an Eliyahu experience with the great prophet Elijah. Vayan Adunai et Eov min and God responded to Eov out of the storm and said, "The storm hasaara is." commonly translated as a whirlwind, which brings to mind the experience of Elijah leaving this world and going up to the heavens in a fiery chariot in the whirlwind. And it was during God's elevation of Eliyahu to the heavens in, a, in the storm. Note that over there, as well as over here, it says Hasara, the storm, not just a storm. And we're referring essentially to a experience that transfers Elijah over there from 
human domain, from earthly domain to heavenly domain, to God's domain. And that same experience which channels or allows something to cross from one domain to the other is exactly what's going on here as the word of God is being channeled down to Eov. Um, this is a good time to re- return to something that I mentioned back in the beginning of the book, and which I sort of hinted to ab- up above. The book of Eov is a drama. The events and its speeches are essentially constructs. They are constructed in order for the inspired author of Eov, who is, uh, who honestly, we, we don't know who he is. Even Chazal don't know for sure who he is. But so that author can convey the inspired wisdoms that he's received or perceived from God about how God does justice in the world, he has constructed these conversations in order to convey that meaning. The positions of the three friends are largely presented to us for rejection, um, at least as far as their serviceability, if you're in a situation where you're trying to aid somebody who is in the, you know, facing real suffering. Eov's positions are, of course, better, but we've been told by Elihu, and we get a sense from the book, that they are colored by pain and perhaps a certain amount of haughtiness, and are therefore, while very good, they have a certain non-objectivity. Elihu's opinions, in that they are undisputed, carry a certain weight, um, and therefore, certainly when God speaks, one would expect him to, to carry the ultimate authority in this book. Um, but again, I, I'd like to, I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, but the words of God are the words of the author of Eov, however inspired or prophetic he may be, they're the words of the author of Eov channeling his understanding of God. He is speaking for God in the way that he perceives that God wants, wants to say what he has to say. Um, remember that in the Rambam's opinion, um, in, in fact, I'd like to add that the Rambam says that the books of Ketuvim are at a lower level of prophecy than the books of Devim. Now, if that's true, that means that one should keep in mind that when this author was channeling God, he's actually doing so at a lower level than Yirmiyahu and Yeshayahu and Yechezkel did. Now, not everybody agrees with the Rambam. Some people say that it's the same level of prophecy. Um, but uh, it is unlikely, and, and again, I, I think this may be a little bit... You know, a strong thing to say, but it's important to say. I don't think God said to the author of Eov, you know, why don't you, you know, I'll wait while you go get a pen, and then when you come back, I have 130 verses of dictation for you to take. Um, the ultimate truth that we have is not in these four chapters. They are a truth. They are a prophet's or an inspired author's insight into what God wants and how God conveys meaning or how God answers some questions of theodicy. The ultimate truth is, as I said before, through the only prophet that was essentially able to hear God face to face. And that's Moses, which means the ultimate truth is the Torah. That's where all the answers are. This book is a received inspiration, or perhaps, if you don't agree with the Rambam, even received prophecy, uh, that helps us grap- grapple with the seeming absence, or worse, um, sometimes what seems to be cruelty by God in this very cruel world. Ultimately, if we were to sum up the first speech of God here, the message is, God controls all of nature for the benefit of mankind, and one, such as Eov, who can't see the full scope of that system, should be careful before making accusations of injustice. Now, of course, that's an oversimplification, and I spent a long time um, introducing these chapters, so I think it's my turn to be quiet, and let's let God have his own say. 
מי זה מחשיך עצה ומילים בלי דעת? Who is this who darkens wisdom with ignorant words? Now, in the previous chapter, we saw that darkness was used as a metaphor for ignorance. Um, the simple meaning here is that you have no idea what you're talking about, Eov. So not only are your words ignorant, but either they create a blind against true wisdom, they're machshich etzot of other people, they blind others' wisdom, or less accusingly, in a less accusatory way, it could be that ze machshich they are blinding you to be able to make wise decisions and say wise things. Not that he's hurting other people, but that he's hurting himself. Now, gird your hips or your loins like a man or like a hero. Gever could be a short form or hinting at the word gibor. And I will ask you questions and you will inform me. So, how do we read this? Is God mocking him when he says you should uh, gird yourself like a man? Or perhaps in a positive way, he's inspiring him to be heroic and strong in the face of an onslaught. Yov himself said, how am I going to bear it if God actually does show up and talk to him? So now that God does show up, he's telling Yov, you know, this is going to be a powerful experience, so you better, you know, you better be ready to take it like a man. Not in a mocking way, but in a, in a, in a trying, kind of a inspirational way. Um, when he asks him a series of questions, is he asking him questions that he won't be able to answer to shame him in his ignorance? Or is he trying to lead him through questioning through to wisdom and self-awareness? It is clear that Eov does not have the big picture. That we're sure of. That's what God will say. And as such, he has no right of assessing God's righteousness based on his, that is, Eov's small observations of little pictures. But the question is, how do we read the text? Uh, do we read it um, how do we read the mood of God? Do we consider God to be mocking and scorning Eov, or do we consider him to be trying to inspire and teach him? And to be honest, that's up to you to decide. I don't have any uh, quick and simple answers. All I can do, and what I'm going to try to do, is translate and speculate on what the author wants God to be saying uh, within the flow of the book. And you will have to decide uh, what the mood of God is and, and whether that fits into... Uh, the overall theme of the book. Where were you when I set the earth on its foundation? Tell me if you have knowledge to understand. God's point is not so much asking about specific scientific knowledge. He's not giving him a science test. But he wants to know whether Eov has knowledge and power to keep the whole world working harmoniously. And that will be emphasized in the verses to come. Who set its measure, meaning the breadth and the depth of the earth? Can you understand it? Who leaned the plumb line against it? A plumb line is a builder's tool which sort of hangs, uh, you hang it from, uh, from a horizontal bar to make sure that you're building your verticals correctly. So what essentially it's saying is, who built the earth in such a way that it stands straight? Who determined the settings that it would be sunk into? Who slung its cornerstone? The word Adanim is not used often in Tanakh, but it's used most famously in the Mishkan, which was the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Essentially, the Adanim were silver, double-hollowed-out feet, and the Krashim, the wooden outer walls of the Mishkan, were sunk into these feet in order to stand. Much like you'd sink uh, one of those outdoor uh, picnic umbrellas into a metal, uh, like a dumbbell, in order for it to stand straight. Uh, many Mephoshim say Adanim are the mountains, but I think it's probably best to stick here with the tabernacle imagery. That is, I think 
the author is trying to remind us that God's creation is much like uh, what we understand as the as his involvement to in the building of the Mishkan. There's something very Jewish going on here, although you could ignore that and go with the universal idea. The reason why I think it's important to stick with the tabernacle imagery is because um, the rest of the verse talks about the cornerstone by saying who slung the cornerstone, which is, I think, clearly a reference to the Evan Shdiah, which was the foundation stone of the temple, which is now enshrined in the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim uh, uh, mosque on the Temple Mount. And David writes actually about that stone, Evan Masu Bina, the stone that, that the builders were disgusted with became a foundation stone, became the foundation stone. So I think for whatever reason this verse is trying to compare the creation of the earth with the creation of our holy places. But as a result of this creation, and this is the important part, Biron Yachad as the morning stars sang together and all heavenly creatures, meaning the angels, shouted out. Now, this concludes the first section, and the message is, if Eob was neither around to see the glorious creation, nor had the ability to understand it, then how can he, how can he understand or claim to understand God's actions in this world? I'm going to avoid, uh, by the way, the issue of the morning stars. They may also be angels, or they may be the celestial bodies that went around the earth, or were thought to have gone around the earth. Um, and the idea of a song is that there was apparently a rhythm or a song, some kind of like uh, metaphysics that would allow them to go about their way. Um, but it, uh, but it's not right now. It's it's not my interest to go into the metaphysics or the kabbalistic meaning of, of those terms. Now, where the first section dealt with God's establishment of the land to house civilization, the next section focuses on the forces that try to destroy the civilization which God allowed to be founded when he created the earth. And he, God, caged in yam with doors as it burst out or tried to burst out from the womb. The womb is, of course, the sea. Yam is the name of the sea god. Uh, but of course for the Jewish people, the Yam is no god, but simply this describes a personification of the sea with all of its destructive forces and its desire to inundate the earth and wipe out civilization. In my setting clouds as its clothes, that is the uh, this god of the sea that tried to break out of its womb to destroy the civilization on the earth, and thick clouds as it's swaddling. Uh, I'm using the word swaddling. It's interesting. In modern Hebrew, the word chatulim are diapers. And I broke my limits against it, perhaps referring to the rocks that break apart the momentum of the ocean, and I set doors and hinge against it. That is, I locked this yam into its place to protect the earth. And I said, you may come up to here, but no further. Only up here can your mighty waves go. Um, having described the might that it takes to measure the earth first, and then second section to contain the sea that wants to cover the earth, God now moves on to the heavens and his control over them. Since the day that you existed, have you commanded the morning? Have you taught dawn its place? Now the word yada is in the PL here, so it means to teach or, or probably to assign a role of or, or to prepare something. As I've hinted before, God is not 
trying to show off his powers for power's sake. Neither in section one where he created the earth, nor in the section two where he bound up the sea, or in this section where he controls the, he- the, 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 uh, the heavens. His goal is that he controls nature in order to allow civilization to grow. The morning is brought on for the following purpose. In order to grab the corners of the earth so the wicked will be shaken off of it. The light here, then, is used to reveal the hiding places and the secret evil of those who work in darkness. And by shining lights, literally or metaphorically, they can, they scurry away like bugs. They're essentially ejected from the land. The goals of God are not, therefore, to create for creations, that is, to control nature for the sake of being able to control nature, but it is to allow the viability of human civilization. This is a, a difficult verse, but based on the context, I would I think that what it means is that when the light comes, the light that was referred to in the previous verse, that the wicked come into clear relief like a hard-to-see stamp on earthenware or silver. Um, that is, if you ever notice, on the bottom of like a silver uh, item, there'll be a tiny little hard-to-see stamp. And the only way to really find out what the quality of it is or who made it would be to uh, turn it upside down and hold the light to it, and then it would uncover the secrets. And I think that's the sense here. The second part seems to be that they, the wicked, they stand out like clothes, I think what that means is, uh, I'm basing my understanding um, on the Mishnah in Brachot, which talks about how in daytime you know that it's time to say Shema when you could discern between colors on the cloak. So the light comes out and allows you to tell the difference between the good and the evil, even though in the darkness it's hard to make it out, again, metaphorically and literally. And their light is denied to the wicked and the upraised arm is shattered. Now, in chapter 24, you have complained about the big three sinners, if you remember, the adulterer, the murderer, the, the thief, who rebel against the light and work in the darkness. So God is saying that the light will shine down on them and will break them. And since Eov cannot do any of that light shining, he shouldn't gu- judge or accuse God of not doing the right thing as far as shining his light. In the next section, a new section, uh, God focuses on the primordial forces. Specifically, he's talking about death and the underworld and the challenges. And, and, and what he's doing is he's challenging Eov to comprehend the origin and terminus of life and death and of light and of darkness. Have you entered the sources of the sea? Have you traversed the limits of the abyss? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the the have you seen the gates of darkness? Of course the word Salmevit simply means deep darkness, but there's no question that, that the word ma that the sound Mavit at the end of Salmavit carries with it a hint of death. Have you comprehended the very extent of the earth? Tell me if you know it in its totality. Also tell me, Which way is it to where light dwells and darkness? Where is its place? Can you escort it to its borders? That is the light. Can you understand the way to its home? 
The temptation here, of course, is to explain all this based on Einstein or quantum mechanics and the source of light and the speed of light, but I'm going to avoid, just like I'm going to avoid getting it, I avoided getting into Kabbalistic issues, I'm going to avoid to try to understand this in terms of uh, modern-day physics. Light and darkness, literally and metaphorically, are symbols, uh, they're, metaphorically, they're symbols of justice and corruption. Literally, they're symbols of, you know, just an amazement that God is able to make things light and darkness and the difference between them. Um, and therefore, it's not necessary to over-identify them. The idea is that since you can't control light and dark, you have no right to really say you cannot see the the ultimate play of light and darkness. You can't know from the beginning of time to the end of time. Therefore, you, Eov, cannot really criticize. Again, the idea is, Eov, you don't know the big picture. You see a bunch of little pictures. Now, the next line is hard to read in any other way other than sarcastic. Uh, which is not really an attribute we like to apply to God, but I have to translate it as I see it. You must know it. That is, all these things, light and darkness, the ways into death, the abyss, since you were born then, and the number of your years, God says to Eov, are great. The point is, you aren't there in the creation of the world, so you only understand a very small piece, a very small sliver of the cycles of existence, of life and death, of darkness and light, from the highest places of the earth to the deepest places on the earth. And again, the, the verse certainly comes off as sarcastic, but I'll leave it up to you to decide. The next part, again, a new section. The next part recall, recalls Elihu's focus on thunderstorms. However, keeping with the overall theme of this chapter that I've mentioned, God, as opposed to Elihu, was saying that the storms are brought as a sign of God or a way that God communicates with people or as uh, destructive forces, um, God is demonstrating that he has control over nature and the reason why he changes nature is in order to effect a change in human history, that is to shape and affect civilization. Havata el Otsarot Shelig Vaotsarot Barad Have you entered the treasure room or the vault of snow? Can you see the vault of uh, uh, where where hail is kept? Asher Chasachti Laet Tsar Liyom Karavu Milchama, which I have stored up, that is this snow and this hail for a time of trouble, specifically for a day of battle and war. And of course this recalls the wars which are mentioned in Navi, where the tide of battle was changed by rain, for instance, such as the battle that Devorah and Barak fought, or by an opportune hailstorm like Joshua's battle in Beit Haron. So essentially God is saying, I control nature and I store it up in order to allow human history to work out the way it should. Do you know the way that light divides? the way the east wind scatters over the earth. Now, perhaps perhaps the word, the light, uh, means like the sunlight, which rises, I guess, over the horizon, and along with the east wind comes the light, which shines uh, as well. Um, Ibn Ezra, who's looking for something more substantial than just light, because he has this idea of an east wind, so he wants something to be more substantial, more powerful, so he says that, uh, he quotes somebody saying that it means rain. Um, interestingly, if the word wasn't uh, or, yechalek uh, or with an aleph, but it was or with an ayin, then we could understand it to mean wind, because or in Aramaic uh, means a whirlwind. But um, I think probably it's best to avoid trying to trans, uh, you know, to swap in and out consonants, even if they're ayin and aleph, which have some relationship to each other. I think the sense is that light does have a certain substance as it shines over the horizon. I mean, it feels 
powerful to people, and therefore it may be ushering the wind, which affects change. Mi filag lashetef te'alav ederech lechaziz kolot, who carved a trench out for the flash floods, who carved a path for the thunder clouds. Once again, the reason for God's actions are given. It's not for the sake of showing off power. It's to rain down on unpopulated land and on uninhabited deserts. To quench absolute desolation, real, complete desolation, to cause the sprouting grasses to grow. This always reminds me of um, a, a film I once saw on one of those nature shows about the Serengeti. And at the very end of the dry season, if you look at the ground there, it's completely cracked. I mean, it looks like, you know, totally inhabitable and all the animals have left it. And then all of a sudden the rain seasons come and you see the animals returning. It's really quite dramatic. And I'm sure this happens in modern Israel as well. Certainly it happened in ancient Israel because our author is writing about it. Personally, I lived in Ranana and Petatikva, which were very modern built up cities. So even though it didn't rain the entire summer when it did rain it was nice but you didn't get a, a sense that nature itself was was being you know revitalized you didn't feel the life and death experience but no doubt if you live before uh, you know drip irrigation and running water and flush toilets and uh, you know uh, 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 getting buying bottled water from the makolet so obviously these kind of things very, felt very much more like life and death Eov is now asked to recognize where all this rain and therefore all of this care that is God's care of civilization comes from. He want, God wants him to say, do you see my reign and do you see how it restores life? So let's recognize where it all comes from. Does the rain have a father? And or who gave birth to the dewdrops? It's clearly a rhetorical question, and the answer is I did. God. From whose womb did the ice come out from? And who gave birth to the frost from the skies? Again, me, God. Do you know how water is trapped like a stone, meaning when it freezes, and how the surface of the abyss is captured again as in a deep freeze? Now Eov, in this new section, is asked whether he can control the stars. So we've moved out to a different section, and we're up in the heavens, specifically constellations. Can you bind the cords of the constellation Kima, or unbind the drawstring of the constellation Kassil? Uh These are probably Pleiades and Orion, respectively. Can you bring out Mazarot in the right time, or allow Aish to guard her, guide her children? From the context, these are also celestial bodies and constellations. There's no real identification for Mazarot, except for the fact that it must be some type of constellation from, from the context. Um, Aish, which is probably identical with the word, uh, with the constellation Ash that we saw in chapter 9, um, it clearly has pups here because it says, uh, can you allow Ayesh to guide her children? Now, in chapter 9, I said that it may be Sirius, which is in the constellation Canis Major, the great dog. But some people pr- propose Ursa Major, which is the great bear. Um, and that fits very, very nicely because what that means is that the pups that Ursa Major is leading may not only be her own pups, like the Ursa Major, of course, the Big Dipper, so the Little Dipper and Ursa Minor, but 
what it means is us. That is, we use, I, I mean, I should say not we use, the ancients, just like we do, the ancients surely knew about how to use the Big Dipper to find, or Ursa Major to find the Little Dipper, the, 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 and the, or specifically the Polaris, the North Star, and they used the North Star to navigate, uh, before they had compasses. That was the only way to navigate, and it's still used today in camping and in the army. Um, so it could be that metaphorically, not or literally, she takes care of her pups. But again, since the whole chapter is all about how God takes care of us and civilization through His creations, it could be that God formed the the uh, the stars in such a way that human beings can be led by her, and that we are the pups, so to speak, of um, of Aish of Ursa Major. Anyway, continuing on. Do you know the rules of the heavens? Can you ordain its control over the land? Again, we return to the idea that God doesn't control the heavens to demonstrate how powerful he is. He allows them to affect the earth and to affect civilizations on the earth. Now, I'm not going to speculate on the astrological meaning here, which is that God controls the heavens in order to, for them to have an effect on the earth. And, and surely um, the author probably did believe in the astrological effect. And in fact, people today believe in astrological effect on uh, on uh, the earth. Um, it's not my cup of tea, but um, my goal is neither to affirm it or disconfirm it. I can say that if you want to take a more scientific approach here, it could mean, as I mentioned about Ursa Major being uh, pointing to Polaris, that is based on the stars, people are able to control what happens on the earth. Navigation, recognizing seasons, all of these things were used by sailors and ancient people in order for them to be able to become a civilization. Now we return to the storm clouds, uh, which we mentioned up above, but here it's a bit different. Uh, God is now asking, can you do this? Now this began in the constellation section, where God was talking about his the way that he controls the constellations so that they could have a good effect on civilization. But there was a question there to Eov, or a challenge to Eov, which was, hey, can you do this? So based on that theme of can you do this, God now returns to some other things that God that, that Eov can't do. Do the storm clouds move to your voice? And will the torrential rains cover you? Meaning based on your spoken command. Only God can make the clouds rain where he wants them to. And only God can make it rain on man and give him the rain that he so desperately needs. Can you send the lightning bolts on their way? And will they say to you, here we are, ready for your command? Who places knowledge in the guts? Who gives the sechvi understanding? Now, I'm embarrassed to say about this verse, which is super famous, because it's used in morning blessings. Um... But actually, it, we, it, this verse may be translated based on the fact that it's used in the in, in that blessing. The way we understand it is who gives the rooster un, the way that we would normally translate is who gives the rooster understanding. Um, however, based on the parallel to the word batuchot here, which is a body part, we would expect it another body body part. So Rashi, who does mention. Uh, that it's a rooster, cites an alternate opinion, which means that the word sechvi means heart. And I have to tell you, Ibn Ezra and the Ramban say it definitely means heart. They don't even give another uh, translation. So to all you rooster supporters, sorry, 
The bracha does mean who gives knowledge to the rooster, but here probably means who puts knowledge into the heart, which was, of course, thought to be a source of knowledge and intelligence. Now, the verse seems to leave off from the storm imagery. That is, we were talking about a storm and God's control over it, and all of a sudden we moved on to this idea of who makes, uh, who gives knowledge into his creations. Now, this will be the theme as we get to verse 39 in a few verses, and it will go on to the next chapter as well. But before we get there, we return to the storm and to the heavens, and the question of who can shape nature for uh, their own purpose. Who makes the heavens azure? Ebenezer says the word yisaper doesn't mean to count or to tell, but it's a PL verb of the noun sapir or sapphire, which means who makes the heavens blue. Now, shachakim could be heavens or it could also mean clouds. So if it's clouds, it's that kind of dark, purpley color that you get for a real nasty storm. And it matches the rest of the verse, which talks about a storm, which is v'nivle shamayim yashkiv, and who decants, that is who pours out the pitchers of the skies. But seked afar lamutzak or gavim yidubaku, as dirt pours into a form that is because of the rains, you get clumps and they clump together, are fused and, and rocks are fused together. Again, all of this is that God causes the rain and the storms and the heavens and the earth and the seas all for one purpose, which is to shape the earth and allow it to be allow civilization to grow on it. Now, as I said, starting from the next verse, we're going to, and going on through the next chapter, into chapter 39, the focus switches to animals and how their remarkable instincts are the product of God's programming and providence, and that Eov can either hope to do that or even hope to understand how it's done. Hatatsud lavi taref will you hunt prey for the lion, and can you fill the needs of the panther? As they crouch in their dens or lie in their underbrush, in the underbrush in order to ambush. Who prepares game for the raven when the chicks, when their chicks pray to God, that is when they're starving and they pray for, pray to God, and they start to stray due to the lack of food. Now the theme of God giving animals instincts that they need to survive, and the fact that man cannot give them the instincts, nor can they satisfy what the animals need, no matter how intelligent they are, that theme will continue in chapter 39.